Thank you for tuning back in to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. As we get into part three regarding Ebola virus disease, there's a pretty cool fact that I think sometimes gets overlooked when this is talked about, and that is after outbreaks, there are some people who have antibodies to Ebola that never got sick. And so what that means is there are plenty of individuals who were actually infected, but they never ever developed symptoms of Ebola. Immune responses and inflammatory responses can definitely be very different from individual to individual. And that really is not new information in regards to Ebola. In fact, there was a study out of The Lancet back in June of 2000, and the title of that study was Human Asymptomatic Ebola Infection and Strong Inflammatory Response. The reason I bring this up is other than the individual immune and body reactions to Ebola, there is a big difference in how patients are treated in different parts of the world. As a result, there are so many factors that go into whether someone survives or doesn't survive this infection. And even though I did talk about in the first podcast very high fatality rates, particularly in the outbreaks in Africa, we don't automatically have to assume that that would necessarily be the case in a place like the United States. In the October 23rd, 2014 New England Journal of Medicine, there was a perspectives article and it was titled, Doing Today's Work Superbly Well, Treating Ebola with Current Tools. And I love some of the points that were made in this article. The authors were pointing out that volume depletion and all the metabolic abnormalities I talked about with the labs, these can be treated. Ultimately, what you are really often treating with Ebola is hypovolemic shock, because that's what ultimately occurs in a lot of these patients. And one of the lines I really respected from this article, they say, and I'm quoting them, the high mortality from Ebola continues to reflect the natural history of the illness, not an inability to alter its course. So that's the end of the quote. And again, while I respect this is a very highly infectious and definitely a very fatal disease, I don't think it's Armageddon for the world. And I say this because I have had healthcare providers tell me things like, sending me into an Ebola room is like sending me into sniper fire. And I don't want to minimize the dangers of the job when it comes to healthcare. And by no means can I guarantee anybody's safety in this situation. We can only work to try and do everything we possibly can to make it as safe as an environment as humanly possible. But the anxiety, the fear, the nihilism of saying that it is the same thing as walking in front of a sniper, either it's not a very good sniper or you really are not educated on this disease. There are definitely some medical workers who ended up getting Ebola and they can't remember doing anything wrong with the donning and doffing of their equipment. And therefore, there are real risks, but we shouldn't extrapolate that to say that happens to anywhere close to the majority of people. Now, I also want to talk about 
why some people are in the same room, the same apartment, you know, Thomas Duncan's fiance or, or whatever she was, didn't come down with Ebola, yet the nurses in the hospital that took care of him while he was a Texas Presbyterian did get Ebola. The first time he was seen in the ER was not with protective equipment, and none of those healthcare workers nor patients in the ER or in the waiting room got Ebola. Why? Because as you become more ill with this disease, the more infectious you become. Early in the disease, remember in the last podcast I said, you could have 72 hours where you're not even picking up the virus by PCR on a blood test. But as the disease progresses, the amplification of this virus and the amount of cells infected with this virus is almost unbelievable. Now, when you think about most common viruses, you know, something that causes gastroenteritis or an upper respiratory tract infection, those viruses tend to stay with the systems that are being symptomatic. They usually don't go all over the body infecting every cell. But that is where Ebola starts to get really scary. So I told you that early on in the course in the last podcast that it will start actually infecting the cells of the immune system. But man, this thing doesn't really stop with anything other than maybe skeletal tissue and bone. But it gets inside the cells and as it replicates in the cells, that cell bursts open and lets out more virus. But it gets to pretty much all the organs, some of them in a big time way like the liver, but not even just the organs. I mean, it gets into the blood vessels itself. And it's not too hard to see why when that happens, you end up in a hemorrhagic situation. So getting back to part two of the podcast, when I was called in to the patient's room with potential Ebola, and I didn't know whether she had it or not, was I a little scared? Yeah, of course, because that would be a natural reaction. Was I very scared? Not really, and it wasn't because things don't scare me. I'm pretty much a weakling. But the thing that I knew was she had no bodily fluids anywhere in the room other than maybe her sweat when I touched her. So I felt really protected in the gear that I was in with the double gloving and the gown and all the things that were done to really protect me as a healthcare worker. And I say that because I don't want the world to stop when you get called to go see a patient with potential Ebola. I know a lot of people are tempted to just get in their car and drive the other way and think that they're getting called into a death sentence. But early on, there is risk, but it is not like the risk that starts happening once the GI symptoms start once a desquamative rash happens with some of these patients, which obviously uh, results in a lot more bodily fluid like blood being exposed here. And yes, I do get it that there also is Ebola in sweat, so you definitely need those precautions. But we all take a lot of risks in our career. I mean, we walk into patients' rooms with known TB. Surgeons are doing procedures on patients with hepatitis C, HIV, and all other forms of known communicable diseases where if they get stuck, it can be a really big deal. 
I recognize that some of those other viral and bacterial diseases don't kill you in one to two weeks like Ebola can. So there is a big spectrum of risk. I mean, I hate walking into a TB room because just the idea of that bacteria in the air all around me just makes me nervous. I really, really dislike going into patients' rooms who have bed bugs as well. So going into a potential rule-out Ebola patient or even a known Ebola patient who isn't yet all that symptomatic. I think most people who are donned properly with their gear will not feel too scared once they're there. Obviously, the big scary time is doffing, taking off the gear properly. And it is during doffing that you don't want to have any ego. I don't care what your rank is as a physician, what your specialty is. I don't care how urgently you are needed in another area of the hospital or how far behind you may be. One, you got to take your time. Two, I strongly advise letting a helper doff you. A trained helper who is parked outside of that room, who has been trained in personal protective equipment and the doffing of it, no matter what their rank is, and it probably will be below most physicians because it's not usually going to be a physician helper, though it could be, you've got to let them do their job their way. And I don't even like talking about rank because I really believe everybody is equal on a healthcare team. I know some people disagree with me on that, but I think it has to be a pit crew mentality where everybody has their job and they do it well and they do it better than the person who is not normally doing their job. I would never claim I could do a CNA's job as well as a lot of the great CNAs in our hospital. And let's face it, they spend more time with my patients than I do with my patients. But no matter who you are in a hospital, I think it's fair to say that most people realize that the healthcare system is really not ready for a widespread outbreak of Ebola anywhere in any state in the United States. And to be fair, I think it's really unlikely we are going to see a widespread outbreak, but you never know. I think if there's one silver lining that comes out of this, it is realizing how uneven our preparedness is in pretty much most hospitals, how limited our supplies are, how untrained we are in serious isolation matters, how few spaces hospitals have for serious quarantine. I know we've made some really big strides at the two hospitals I work at here in Kara Springs. We are at a much better place than we were a month ago. We're probably out ahead of most people as far as being prepared, but we also are very realistic that we have more ground to cover. And like I said in my flu podcast, that scares me a whole lot. There are a lot of emerging diseases like SARS and MERS and all kinds of other things that I personally feel are even more of a threat than Ebola. Yet, ultimately, it's like earthquakes. You really can't predict when the big one will hit. 
we can't live with a false sense of security. And the more we do now and in the near future, the better off we will be. Hey, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I will catch up with you on the next round.